Well, we celebrate uh, what God has done here at Riverwood. Uh, we also just want to be reminded that we are not here for ourselves. As Jake just said, it's not about a building. It's about building lives. And we believe that uh, as we are seeking to make a difference in our world, we want to do it in the Acts 1-8 model. In our Jerusalem, which is our, our Waverly, Bremer County area, in, in our Judea, that's why we support uh, things like FCA and, and others, uh, to hit the surrounding area, uh, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's why this past year we put in our budget uh, supporting two different missionaries. We've introduced them to you, uh, Aslan McCarthy, who's serving in Togo, and uh, the Smiths, who are serving in um, Cambodia. And uh, the missions decisions team has asked that, that we just take probably about every six weeks to pray for our missionaries, uh, Aslan, the Smiths, and as well as uh, Patrick Ray. And so uh, this morning, we want to pray for um, Aslan. Uh, I emailed her this week just saying, hey, we're going to pray for you on Sunday. Is there anything that we can pray specifically about for you? Uh, she's currently in the States. She's been at a conference uh, uh, this week, and she's been able to make some connection with other people who do deaf ministry. Uh, they're beginning the first deaf ministry in all of Togo, located in Africa. So here's what she says. Please pray with me as I discern what next steps to take in our deaf ministry in Togo. Please also be praying for more people to join our team in general, but specifically in deaf ministry. The feeling of camaraderie with other deaf ministry people was amazing this week, and I realized how hard it is to not necessarily have that in Togo, aside from my deaf Togolese friends. So if you would, let's pray together for Aslan. So Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you not only for who you are, for what you've done for us through Jesus, how, how to thank you for uh, providing for this church, creating this church, but also for bringing Aslan uh, to us, for helping our paths to cross and for us to see the ministry you have called her to. Lord, she is seeking to pioneer the first ever deaf ministry right there in Togo. As she works with this church planting group, realizing that there is an unreached people group of, of deaf people in this nation, to know that there are over 40,000 people who are deaf and they have no language, no um, way to communicate. And so as they create uh, a, a signing system, as they try to create schools to, to educate people, I pray that you would provide them everything they need. As we hear from Aslan, she senses she needs people. It isn't just more money or, or more things and resources. She wants partners. So God, while we are so thankful that we can partner with her prayerfully and financially, we pray that you would raise up others who'd be willing to go to work right alongside of her, even if they don't know uh, sign language, that they'd be willing to go and learn this language so that they can communicate it to others and ultimately to be able to use that language to share the life-changing news about Jesus. So God, would you, I, I, I want to say thank you for the encouragement you gave her this week, the, the ideas and, and, and the excitement that was generated through the conference. But God, would you just help her to trust you, that as, as they need people to help them in planting churches there in Togo overall, that you would provide one, two, 12 people to come alongside and to really radically change this nation and that, that Togo may become a sending nation themselves as they go to do ministry, including deaf ministry, all around Africa and the world. So again, God, thank you for bringing Aslan into our lives. May we just continue to be a big encouragement to her, and may you just help her to stay encouraged as she returns back to, to help people find you and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray together.
Amen. Well, this past week, uh, as I was scrolling through Twitter, I stumbled upon an article uh, in the New York Post uh, about a woman whose TikTok videos have started going viral. Now, I do not have TikTok on my phone. I figure I'm already an expert at wasting time on my phone. I don't need TikTok to help me become better at it. So uh, I, I intentionally don't have it on my phone, but I have seen TikTok videos. I, I know what they're about. Some TikTok videos go viral because, uh, you know, some dance craze and, and people are replicating it. Some TikTok videos go viral because they're funny. Some go viral because they're, they're talking about some sort of like cultural moment. But this woman's videos have gone viral for a very different reason. You see, she describes herself as a fat woman, but she is married to a very muscular, fit man. And the people who watch her videos are absolutely stunned because they wonder, how could she get him? In their mind, their attractiveness, their, their physical shape has created such a gap between them that pe people are just stunned. Like, how is this possible? And so one of her videos, this is what created the New York, caused the New York Post to create this article. One of her videos... She was talking about the responses, the comments that she has gotten. Uh, what, one of the comments was, he must be a paid actor. Uh, other people said, well, you know, you must have been skinny before you guys met. And, and they said some other even more inappropriate things. But then the article said that there was at least one person, maybe there was more than that, but at least one woman who sent a direct message, a DM to her husband, basically saying... You belong with someone like me, not that fat woman. And apparently there was a picture included where, yes, according to cultural standards, this woman was a 10, and who knows what you would rate her. Now, in this video, she goes on to, in a sense, defend their relationship because she says that for her husband, in his list of what he's looking for in a woman, physical attractiveness is way down. What he's looking for is friendship, a match in personalities, similar interests, humor. Like They're looking for these, these underlying things. And so to her, even though the culture says there's this huge gap between them physically, she says that, that gap has been covered by the friendship that we have. In Psalm 19, we're going to hear about a gap. We're going to see just how glorious God is, but the author David is also going to show us just how unglorious we are and that there is a gap way wider than any gap that supposedly exists between that woman and her fit husband. But then we're going to hear David tell us that God has bridged that gap. He's covered it, and we're going to see what he's covered it with. So, for our next installment in our Summer of Psalm series, we're going to Psalm 19. So, if you brought a Bible, open up to Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture up on the screen. But as I say almost every single Sunday, 
we want you to have a Bible. So either download one to your phone and feel free to pull that out and use it on Sundays, or stop by our resource table and pick up one of the paper copies that we have. We've got two different translations. Uh, we'll find the one that'll fit you best because what we want is for you to not only have a Bible when you're here on Sundays, because we open it up and study it every week, but we also want you to be able to open it up on Monday and Tuesday and any day to continue to read about this life-changing gospel, to hear about the love of God and what he wants to do in you and through you. So Psalm 19 is a song. Uh, David starts it off before he even gets to verse 1, to the choir master. And like some songs, he built this one with movements. Today, we're going to see three movements in this song. The first movement is going to be all about the glory of God. We're then going to skip the middle movement and go to movement three, where we're going to hear David pick up the microphone and talk about his own sinfulness. And then we're going to go back to the second movement, the middle movement, and we're going to see what God has done to, to cover the gap that exists between him and mankind. So as we get ready to read, let's pray together. Father, we're about to come into your holy scriptures. These uh, words have been here far longer than any of us have been on the earth, and these words will remain after we are gone. And so, Father, even though we have cultural biases, we've, we've all got our own stories, we've got dreams and hopes and futures, God, help us today to not try to fit this narrative, this song, into our own way of seeing and thinking that instead, as we listen to this, we would be willing to allow you to fit us into your way of thinking. That's why I ask that this not just be about what I try to teach today, but that really this would be about what you have for us. So God, speak to us now through these words, through me, and through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, movement one is all about the glory of God. So join me at verse one of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This past week I saw a uh, quote from a ancient church father, Theodoret of Cyrus. He was born late 300 uh, A.D., died somewhere in the middle 400. So somewhere probably about 420 A.D., he wrote this. If you observe a most mighty and magnificent building, you admire the builder. And if you see a skillfully and beautifully designed ship, you think of the shipwright. And at the sight of a painting, the painter comes to mind. Much more, to be sure, does the sight of creation Lead the viewers to the creator. I think Theodoret of Cyrus is exactly right. When you hear a great song on the radio, you want to know who the band is. When you watch a phenomenal movie, you're pulling up an internet movie database to see what other movies the director has done. Because when you see great art, you can't help but be in awe of the giftedness and greatness of the artist. That is exactly what David is saying here. 
that when you look at creation, it should put you in awe of God. In fact, David doesn't go on and talk about mountains and lakes and lions and, and all sorts of parts of creation. He just stops at the sky. I mean, look there at verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And everything he says there in the rest of the movement is all about how the skies proclaim the glory of God, how the sun travels through it, the day shows the glory of God, the night shows the glory of God, like all of it shows just how great and glorious and majestic and perfect God is. So, yeah, yes, God uses his scriptures to reveal himself and his glory. Yes, God uses humans at times to reveal himself and his glory. God even occasionally uses miracles to reveal himself and his glory. But we can't forget about the sky. If you ever find yourself just down, doubting God's existence, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's power, look up. Look up, because the sky is continually singing about how great God is. But then, after singing about the glory of God, David shifts to picking up the mic and singing about himself, and that is in movement three. So if you would skip to the end of Psalm 19, head down to verse 12. Who can discern his errors. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer." A couple weeks ago, I went to a conference where one of the presenters said that the average human can only see 60% of their body. Think about it. Like, you have never seen your back. I, sure, maybe you saw a photograph, but it, it, that's not your back. Maybe you saw a reflection, it's still not your back. Like, you, you've never seen your face. The only reason you know what you look like is because of mirrors and, and photos. But you've never physically seen your face. You can only see about 60%. However, others, they see the other 40%. They know what you look like. They know about that bald spot in the back of the head that's forming. Like, they see it all. Well, then the presenter went on to say that likewise, internally, many of us feel like we have a good sense of who we are. We see 60% but that we all have blind spots, weaknesses, this hidden 40% that others see and we don't. That's why they said that they were going to give us a gift of a link to send out to 15 to 20 people who interact with us on a regular basis, asking for them to give feedback on us. Now, they did not let us know the questions ahead of time, because if we had seen the questions, we probably wouldn't send it out. So I sent my email out to, uh, I think, like 22, 23 people asking, hey, let me know where I'm ugly. One of the people replied back, letting me know that they had filled it out. And then my friend said this, for the record, I would not like to be the subject of this survey. <laughs> Tough questions. 
Why would my friend say that? Because none of us enjoy having that hidden 40% exposed. We don't like being shown, here's where you fail. Here's where you're weak. Here's how you let people down. Yeah, I'm probably going to get torn apart here in about two weeks when I uh, have my session. We don't like it. It's no fun. The, the presenter shared how he had it. He said he didn't sleep for like two weeks. I'm sorry, two days. Because he had no idea that's how people saw him. David seems to have enough awareness to realize, I may not know everything about me, but I do know enough that I am nothing like God. You see, so many of us, to make ourselves feel better, what we do is we compare ourselves to others. Now, when we see someone who does something better than us, we just try to conveniently ignore them. Instead, what we do is we try to find the people that, well, I do that better than them. I'm a little faster or a little smarter or a little better looking. I'm surely better looking than her. And so we find those people and we compare ourselves to them. You know what? I'm not too bad. And we minimize the 40%. David does not do that. I mean, if, if anyone has the right to do it, David would. If you're familiar with David's story, he became the most famous king in all of Israel. God said he would put someone on the throne of David who would reign forever. He, he's the prototype for the Messiah. In fact, God calls David a man after his own heart. So if anyone could ignore their hidden 40%, David could even say, you know, mine's only like 20, 10. It's not that big of a deal. David could do it. But he didn't. He did not waste his time singing about how great he was. What he did was he compared himself to God, saw how the sky declares how glorious God is, and he takes introspection of himself and goes, but I'm not. And so David ends up showing there's a gap, and this gap is created through two types of sin. The first sin he points out is his intentional sin. Look at verse 13 with me. He's pleading with God, and so he's like, God, Keep back your servant. So he's talking about himself, like, God, please keep me from this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, right? The, the English Standard Version uses that word presumptuous, but I looked at other translations, and they use words like willful sins, deliberate sins. One, one translation even had flagrant. These are the sins you know about. These are the sins you're fully aware of. These are the sins that are in your 60%. And notice what David says about them. Let them not have dominion over me. You'd think if they were exposed, if they're known, you could do something about it. And yet, it's almost like he's acknowledging, and yet I just keep seeming to fall for it over and over and over. He sounds like an addict. He, he sounds a lot like Paul in the, in the book of Romans. Paul said this in chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Yeah, God, I know I should probably do that. And yet I'm just going to sit on my couch and continue to watch Netflix. But God, I, I don't want to give in to that. And yet I'm going to tell that lie to make myself look better. We know the things we should do. and We don't do them. The things we know, I, I shouldn't give in to that. We do, we give in. 
And David is admitting this. He's confessing it. If you're familiar with David's story, what would you say is David's biggest weakness? What seems to trip him up? I would argue it's lust. David had multiple wives. Nowhere in the scripture does God give permission for men to take more than one wife, and vice versa. Nowhere in scripture does he give permission for wives to have more than one husband. And yet David did so. I mean, it's what the other kings did. But also, we know that David saw a woman bathing one night. Rather than being with his army, he's just hanging out in the palace, and in that idle time, he sees her bathing and decides, man, she's gorgeous. I want her. So even though she's married to another man, even though he's married to some other women, he brings her and sleeps with her. David knows, I shouldn't do this. This isn't right. And yet he did it, and he kept trying to cover up his sin over and over and over. He is very aware of his intentional sin. And that intentional sin creates a gap. But David's also honest enough to acknowledge that there are some unintentional sins. That's up there in verse 12. David says, who can discern his errors? In other words, which of us is so aware that we don't have a hidden 40%? Like, the, the, the answer is like, well, none of us. Like, none of us fully understand just the depths of our depravity. That's why it then says, so God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You see, it's, it's one thing to be before God and to confess to him, God, I was mean to my spouse. I was not nice to my kid. I lost my temper at work. I cheated at school. It's another thing to say, but God, I'm probably so comfortable with my sin, I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. I don't even know how I'm hurting the people around me. God, would you forgive me for it? Would you remove it from me? Would you expose it so I can deal with it and confess it? This is raw, honest confession. David realizes even his unintentional sin is part of this gap between the glory and perfection of God and his sinfulness. That is why David moves into... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, before we get there. David does not want to be the sinner, though. This is not who he wants to be. We, we hear at the end of verse 13, he says, God, I want to be blameless. I want to be innocent of great transgression. I, I don't want to commit such sins. He says in verse 14, so let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He's realizing, God, there are things that I do, things that I say that do not reflect you and your goodness. I am not sounding like the sky singing about your glory. I'm singing more about me. I'm hurting those around me. I want the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to you, but I need help. I need changed. I need you to cover the gap. And that's what he sings about in movement two. Go back up to verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Should not be surprising. After David sings about how the sky declare the glory of God, show how perfect and powerful he is, that he would then move into singing about God's law and describe it as perfect. Because a perfect God will create a perfect law. But while, in my opinion, that would have been enough, you, you could have stopped right there. David doesn't stop at just describing God's law as perfect. He can't help himself. He's a poet. He's an artist. He's a creator. He's so in awe of God and his law, he goes on in verse 7 to describe the, the, the law, the testimony of the Lord is sure. In verse 8, he says that these precepts, these truths of the law of God, they're right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous. Like he just keeps going on and on and on and on. The law is so amazing because the law can cover the gap. That is why he says that we should desire the law more than gold, that it is sweeter than honey. If you know how much honey I put in my tea, you would know that verse means a lot to me. Like, this, this law is so amazing, it's so incredible, it's perfect, it's right, it's true, it's clean, it's pure, it's all of these things. So we should want it because when you live by the law, notice verse 7, it will revive the soul. The scriptures teach that we are spiritually dead. And David is saying, if we will live by the law, this perfect, clean, pure law that God has given us, if we will live by it, it will revive the soul. Notice down in verse uh, uh, 11, it says that in keeping the law, there is great reward. Gold is precious. One of the most precious metals on all the planet. And yet, the value of gold in the markets just continues to go up and down. Gold is something that, you know, an Olympic athlete wants to chase after. And yet, that gold medal could be stolen. Yet, no one can steal the law. The value of it does not change because it is perfect. It is faithful. It is right. It is constant. So David's saying, you should value this more than gold. It's sweeter than honey. It can change your life. And so, if you're wanting an application point, here's your application point from Psalm 19. Apply the law. Live out the law of God perfectly, and you will see God cover the gap. But I have bad news. You can't do it. Over and over and over in the scriptures, it tells us that we cannot keep the law. We can try. We can do it for a time. We can, we can do the majority of it. But the only way the gap is fully covered is for us to perfectly apply the law. You see, the law is perfect. It covers the, the gap. We just can't cover the law. And I, I think David knows this. If David thought differently, I think he would structure his song differently. 
I, I think movement one would still be about the glory of God, but instead of going to movement two about the, the, the law and how it is perfect, I think he'd, sing, he'd move movement three up. He'd sing about himself and his own sin. Then he'd go into what we know as movement two, make that movement three. He'd talk about the law, and then, therefore, I will just go and apply myself to the law. I'll live perfectly. The gap is covered and tidy up the song with a nice little ending chord. But that's not what he does. He sings about God's glory, Talks about how this perfect God has created this perfect law, how this law is able to cover the gap, it's able to revive the soul, but I am a sinner. I fall short. And as much as I even try, I still do these intentional sins. And I even have these hidden sins I'm not even aware of. I can't do it. I want to be blameless. I want to be innocent. I want the meditations of my heart and the, the thoughts of my mind to be pleasing to God, but I can't do it. Christianity teaches that neither can you. Aren't you really glad you came to church today? If I were sitting there, I'd be thinking like, man, a rough week. Kind of wanted to be a little bit encouraged. Or man, this is a great week. You know, like we, our, our campaign, we got balloons, we're celebrating. You know, and, and now I'm sitting here telling you, yeah, but you're a sinner. It's uncomfortable. I will be honest, if there's one thing I don't like about Christianity, it is this doctrine that mankind is sinful. Because to tell people that sounds judgmental, it does not sound caring, it doesn't sound loving, it doesn't sound honoring, in fact it sounds cruel. And I have even heard non-Christians complain about pastors like me who hold to this doctrine that we just simply use it to shame people so that we can then manipulate them and continue to maintain power for ourselves. I'm a little too much of a people pleaser. I don't want anyone to feel like, oh no, this guy hates me. I'd rather say, man, you're great. But the Bible says, actually, you're not. God is great. You are sinful. But just because I may not like this doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, I don't like that my Kansas City Royals are one of the worst teams in all of Major League Baseball right now. Like, they're like 20 games under 500. They're last in their division. I think they have the third or fourth worst record in all of baseball. In fact, they lost yesterday to the Oakland A's who managed to have a worse record than them. I don't like this. This season's been no fun. So what do I do? Pretend it's not happening? You know what? I just feel like the Kansas City Royals are the best team. I mean, I just, I, I could go and find out any, whatever statistics I want, and I could just say, well, my truth is they're the best team. But the reality is, you look at their record, and you see, nope, they're at the bottom. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. So just because I don't like this doctrine, it doesn't mean it's not true. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. It isn't God created man, mankind sinned, that's too bad. God created this law, this perfect, beautiful, pure, clean, true and righteous law, that if we just live by it perfectly, the gap is covered. But God knew we couldn't do it. He knew that all of us would be like David. 
And so he created another path, another way apart from the law. He covered the gap through something else. We hear about this in Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. In chapter 1, he, he, after you know, his introduction and, and starting off about how great God is, he starts talking about these people, these sinful people. But, but Paul, I think, knew that his audience would be reading that going, yeah, those people are really bad. And, and so in chapter 2, he starts saying, well, actually, many of you, and he speaks to some of these Gentiles, these non-Jews, he's like, even you, though, you do some of these same things. Even though you claim you're better, like, if I'm going to expose your hidden 40%, you're just like them. But then Paul knows that his Jewish readers will be going, yeah, those Gentiles are bad because we good Jews, we've got the law. And then in chapter 3, he starts in on the Jews. Like, yeah, but you're no better. So basically, he tears down people in general, even moral people, and even the Jews. And sums it all up in verses 10 through, I think, like 18 in chapter 3. Basically, summing up the entire doctrine on the depravity of man from the Old Testament. No one is good, no, not one. All of us are evil in the sight of God. Then in verse 21, he makes a turn. So this is Romans 3, 21 through 25. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So it isn't that the law was bad. No, the law is good. It's perfect. A perfect God creates a perfect law. However, because God knows we can't do it, and because God loves us so much, he's created this other way. He's manifested it, created it apart from the law. Right? And, and then he acknowledges, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law being the, the Mosaic law, the prophets being the major minor prophets from the Old Testament. Basically, this is Paul's way of saying, even though the Old Testament points to what I'm about to tell you. Right? So God's created this path. He's covered the gap through another means. The law and the prophets, they point to this. And here's what they're pointing to. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, God has covered the gap between his perfectness and your imperfectness through Jesus. When you put your faith in the story of the death and resurrection of Christ, it revives your soul. When you put everything that you are into him, you now come spiritually alive. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you believe upon him, you've covered the gap. He goes on to explain. For all, I'm oh, sorry, for there is no distinction. In other words, this gospel isn't just for the Jew. It isn't just for the moral person. It isn't just for the rich. It isn't just for the white person. It isn't just for the middle class. It isn't just for whatever category you want to create. There's no distinction. This is for everyone. Why? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. That really, really, really uncomfortable doctrine, the one that makes us a little uneasy, the one that sounds judgmental, the one that seems to push people out, but it doesn't. It doesn't push anyone out. Instead, it lumps us all together. There's no distinction. But the story's not done. Verse 24, those people who put their faith in Jesus are then justified by his grace as a gift. 
A way that you can remember that word justified is just as if I'd never sinned. When you put your faith in Jesus, you accept this gift of grace. God now looks at you and it says, just as if I'd never sinned. You are justified. You're removed. He's covered the gap. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God created Adam and Eve, put his image in them, but when they sin, sin stole them away. God purchased us. He redeemed us through Christ's death and resurrection. So there is redemption through Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his, uh, sorry, a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation means to appease the wrath of God. Oh, wait a second, Aaron. You're talking about the wrath of God. Yeah? But God's wrath was not against you. His wrath is against sin. Sin stole you away. God put his image in you, and yet sin came in and messed up the image. It's still there, but they ruined it. And so the wrath of God wanted to come against sin. And that wrath was appeased. God's justice was mollified. It was satisfied. It was fulfilled by his blood. The penalty of sin was death. Jesus, though, went and paid that penalty. And as his blood was shed, your sins were forgiven. And God's anger and wrath against the sin in you is appeased, and he welcomes you into his family. And, then you, and all of this is received by faith. So the law is good. The law is perfect. It's everything David said. You just can't do it. So I mean, by all means, if you want to reject Jesus and you want to just go and live a moral life, good luck. Go for it. You'll probably be a nicer person. You're just not going to be able to do it. In fact, you're probably not even going to be able to get through the week. You, you probably won't even get through the day. Because there's that 40% that you're unaware of it just keeps you separated and keeps the gap there. That is why God provided, apart from the law, another way. He provides Jesus. He provides himself. And as he covers that gap, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you realize that this gospel message is perfect, it revives your soul. When you realize that the testimony of the Lord's death and resurrection is sure, it will make you wise. When you realize that the precepts, the truth about this gospel message are right, it will cause rejoicing in your heart. When you realize that the, the commandment to follow God, to believe in the gospel is pure, it will enlighten your eyes. Do you see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the second movement? It's like the gospel gives us a remix so that we don't get confused and think, well, I just got to go and be more moral. I just got to go and apply these things. God's like, no, 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 I, you can't, and I know you can't. That's why I provided another way. Believe upon Jesus, and let your life be changed. So you should treasure Jesus more than gold. You should want him more than honey. He is to be your great reward. He will revive your soul. And when you allow Jesus to cover the gap, when you allow him to be your everything, then you become, as David longed for, blameless and innocent. 
And when you put your faith in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and he will empower you to let the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart be acceptable in his sight. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want today to become your spiritual birthday. I want you to experience the revival of your soul. The world is going to tell you through TikTok and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and, and everything else to find your joy and satisfaction in all these other things. But all those things can be taken away. Come to Jesus, the one who has existed eternally and will exist to eternity. Put your faith in him. He loves you. He wants you. Give it all to him. Let him revive your soul. May he be your great reward. May he change your life. May he help you become more like him so that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Heavenly Father, we just uh, pray right now that you would help us to do that. I pray for anyone that has never put their faith in you, that today, right now, they would be confessing their sin they may have some intentional sins, things that they're very aware of that they know they've done. Maybe they're embarrassed by it and they think you could never forgive them of that. But God, it's not that you can't forgive them of it. It's that they can't earn your forgiveness. And so help them right now to cast all of their faith, all of themselves, all of their belief upon Christ, that they would see that Jesus covers the gap between you and us. And as they put their faith in you, that you would begin to change them from the inside out you would begin to give them a new heart, a new mind, a new way of living, a new way of valuing. So God, lead them right now through your spirit to confess their sin. Lead them to place their faith fully upon you. Lead them to be willing to believe that this whole entire story is true. Lord, I pray for the person that's here that has put their faith in you and yet they're not allowing this to be their foundation. They're being too hampered by their intentional sin. They're, they're, they know that there is hidden sin and they're embarrassed. They've been running from you. They're hiding. Others of us, God, we've just been apathetic. We've gotten lazy. We, we've, we've allowed our great knowledge to make us think that we know more than we actually do. We've inflated our 60% and not realizing there's so much more you want to do in us and through us. God, I thank you that your mercies are new every day. You are not sitting there angry, wanting to kick us out of your presence. Instead, because of the work of Jesus, you want us to come. And so, God, we come. We come to you in humbleness, we come to you with confession. We come to you because you are a glorious God that the skies sing about every single day and every single night. And if you, God, could create all of that and keep it running its course so consistently, we can trust you, we can rely upon you, we can come to you because you are good. You are great. You are perfect. You are glorious. So in Jesus' name, we pray this together. Amen.